Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Sarah Kenzior, co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast, who assesses the opening hearings of the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection and the urgency of holding Donald Trump and his co-conspirators accountable. Malik Morrison, a Virginia ecologist and member of the group Scientist Rebellion, who explains how his opposition to the Mountain Valley Pipeline is linked with a broader fight to address the climate crisis. And the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, who talks about her group's June 18th event in Washington, D.C., the Poor People's and Low-Wage Workers' Assembly and Moral March on Washington, and to the polls. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Violence has been on the rise in the disputed Kashmir region between India and Pakistan after a leading nonviolent independence activist, Yasin Malik, was sentenced to life in prison by an Indian special court. Malik founded the now-banned Jammu and Kashmir Liberation Front, which renounced violence in the 1990s and engaged in talks with India and Pakistan over Kashmir's status. He was arrested in 2019 by Indian security forces and convicted in May of illegally raising funds, membership in a terrorist organization, criminal conspiracy, and sedition. After Malik's conviction, India closed mosques in the Kashmir district capital of Srinagar and banned Friday prayers. Armed Islamic militants have fought India's rule in Kashmir since the late 1980s and tens of thousands of Hindus fled the region. India revoked the special status of Kashmir three years ago. Pakistan condemned Malik's conviction as a sham trial, as well as a move by India's nationalist Prime Minister Narendra Modi to equate the Kashmiri's legitimate struggle for the right of self-determination with terrorism. Today, 600,000 Indian troops patrol Kashmir, making it the most militarized region in the world. But attacks on protected Hindu colonies has increased, with 16 targeted killings thus far in 2022. As the Supreme Court is expected to overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade abortion ruling, Democratic activists are working for a big turnout in this November's midterm election in the western swing states of Arizona and Nevada, with large blocks of pro-choice voters. Progressive labor unions and Latino community organizations have already started knocking on doors to get out the vote. But the American Prospect reports that despite the union's efforts in Nevada, the state's Democratic U.S. Senator Cortez Masto, running for re-election, is trailing in recent polls due to voter anger about surging inflation. Unite Here union activists knocked on over 750,000 doors in Arizona to help Joe Biden win the state in 2020. This year, unions and community groups will be knocking on doors to get out the vote of the young, people of color, and suburban women whose votes may swing due to the abortion issue and protecting a woman's right to choose. As one union official points out, a majority of their members are women and their health and safety is of critical concern. 
Unions plan to field more canvassers in Arizona and Nevada this year with the hope that they can convince a majority of voters to focus on protecting women's rights while sending the message that inflation's skyrocketing prices aren't the fault of Joe Biden and the Democratic Congress. In recent years, an inrush of tourists, remote workers, and investors has driven land and housing prices out of control in much of the West. As gentrification impacts small towns and rural communities, investors are now buying up mobile home properties. Two such investors even started Mobile Home University to sell online courses teaching others how to maximize profits. In a blog post titled How to Make Returns on Mobile Home Parks, the co-founder Frank Rolf sums up the strategy. He advises his student investors that it costs $3,000 to move a mobile home, and as a result, he says most tenants can't afford to leave when you raise their rents. However, thanks to a new Colorado law, owners of mobile home parks must now give residents notice of intent to sell the property and provide 90 days for tenants to organize together and form a cooperative and then make their own offer to buy the property their mobile homes stand on. But such cooperative conversion victories are rare, so a coalition of mobile homeowners is supporting a bill in the Colorado legislature that would extend the offer timeline to 180 days and impose penalties on owners who don't negotiate in good faith. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. One and a half years after thousands of Trump supporters launched a violent attack on the U.S. Capitol in a failed attempt to overturn Joe Biden's 2020 presidential election victory, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection held its first public hearing on June 9th. The hearing, broadcast live on primetime TV, featured never-before-seen video of the attack and clips of former Trump administration officials' testimony including former Attorney General William Barr, Trump's daughter Ivanka, and son-in-law Jared Kushner. Committee Chair Representative Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi, and Vice Chair Representative Liz Cheney, Republican of Wyoming, gave opening statements which asserted that Trump's own inner circle did not believe the former president's baseless claims of a stolen election. Representative Cheney, one of only two Republicans on the committee, stated that Trump had a sophisticated seven-point plan to overturn the 2020 presidential election, details of which will be the focus of as many as seven future hearings. Your reporter spoke with Sarah Kenzior, author of the book Hiding in Plain Sight and co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast, who assesses the opening hearings of the House January 6th committee and the urgency of holding Trump and his co-conspirators accountable. 
basically, I feel like this is too little, too late. These attacks were planned online. The public was broadly aware of them. You know, we could watch them being planned in real time. They were not prevented. They were uh, aired on TV live. They were live streamed over the Internet. We all witnessed this happen. And one thing that's interesting to me is that in the immediate aftermath, of the attack, the vast majority of Americans condemned it, and the vast majority of Americans, including Republicans at that time, viewed Biden as the legitimate president and viewed Trump as somebody you know who should face consequences for these actions. This is not controversial. This is not particularly partisan. And what has happened is that so much time has elapsed from January 6th until now that collective memory of what actually happened that day has been altered. And that is just as much the fall of the Democrats and of the January 6th committee and the DOJ as it is of uh, the right wing, you know, outlets like Fox News that are constantly rewriting history in real time. Their inaction has allowed that other narrative, that counter narrative, to really take hold. And so, you know, what they're doing now is basically trying to revive people's memories, you know, bring them back to that day and be like, no, you know, there wasn't uh, voter fraud. They're still arguing against the claims that Trump made in late 2020, uh, early 2021, instead of laying out the broader conspiracy, which implicates not just Trump, but people like Roger Stone or Michael Flynn or Steve Bannon, who notably are not being mentioned at all. Well, we've got more hearings coming up, so we hope there's a fuller picture that's painted by this committee. But one thing that alarmed me that I want to get your take on is I heard many commentators when they were watching Thursday's opening hearing of the January 6th committee talk about the most important audience member for that hearing. And they talked about how they hoped Attorney General Merrick Garland was sitting there watching the hearing, taking notes. But you would hope that the U.S. Justice Department is currently investigating the attempted coup. They should have all the evidence and more gathered by the January 6th House Committee. It seems impossible to believe that the Justice Department has not already acted to indict those involved, as you said, in plain sight, organizing this attempted coup. Indictments, sure, but in the view of many people, including myself, there's plenty of evidence to have already tried and put these folks in prison who attempted to overturn our deeply flawed democracy. Yeah, absolutely. Mayor Garland has had no intention from the start of holding any of the criminal elites accountable. He's only going for, you know, random, ordinary Americans who got heated up by Trump's rhetoric or by, you know, a QAnon post and showed up on January 6th. They're not looking at the actual operatives, and that's because those operatives are people from their circle, whether it's, you know, Ginny Thomas or Michael Flynn and Bannon, who both served in the administration, or, you know, and I really should bring this up. It's a topic no one wants to discuss, but the January 6th uh, hearings are being uh, overseen by a woman named Jamie Gorelick. You may remember her from the Clinton administration and from you know just a variety of broad corruption scandals over the last 25 years or so. She was Ivanka and Jared's lawyer. She's the person who installed Ivanka and Jared in the White House and allowed them to get through uh, you know ethics. Uh, violations that they normally would face. She also is a lifelong friend and mentor of Merrick Garland, going all the way back to their Harvard days from when they both were trained by Alan Dershowitz, who, of course, was one of Trump's lawyers. 
So you have this giant conflict of interest. You have a, you know, sort of modern Roy Cohn, uh, you know, having great influence behind the scenes over both the DOJ and the January 6th uh, committee. And what they don't want to do is indict anybody within that department or connected to it. That's why we're seeing reputational rehab through these hearings. They're seeing people like Bill Barr get touted out as some sort of, you know, moral arbiter, as somebody who's against Trump, when he was actually somebody who contributed to the plot and who did nothing in real time to stop it. And the same, of course, is true of Ivanka and Jared. So it's it's really disturbing. I mean, I think that's what it boils down to. And the whole, you know, Merrick Garland just sitting there watching TV, getting his information from that, that just brought to mind Donald Trump, you know, who used to watch Fox News and just parrot their narratives. I felt like it was like almost a little nudge, nudge, wink, wink kind of moment. It was very strange, at, at the least extremely uh, unprofessional and lazy. There are many people who are observing these hearings and the lack of action by the Justice Department on holding Trump and his inner circle accountable. And they assure the public that behind the scenes, in secret, there's a grand jury working to hold these folks accountable and make the American justice system work. Have you seen any evidence that this actually is going on and that Trump and the folks who attempted this coup will be brought to justice? No, I see no evidence of that. And honestly, these claims are very reminiscent of what happened during the Mueller probe. You know, people were constantly saying, oh, you know, Mueller's going to save us. Mueller's going to bring him down. Then they switched to uh, Cy Vance, uh, you know, the SDNY uh, DA, and said, oh, Cy Vance is going to take Trump down. And then they switched to the January 6th committee, and now it's Merrick Garland. It's savior syndrome. You know, it's this rotating, mythical savior figure that people invent in order to justify the lack of accountability and to not ask questions about it. And it really mirrors the phenomenon we saw uh, with QAnon, you know, with all these Trump fans who are just like, oh, you know, trust the plan, wait, the storm is coming, and, you know, constantly just trying to pacify his audience into obedience. That's actually what my book, They Knew, is about in large part. It's about actual conspiracies and the sort of, you know, tactics of placation and of manipulation that powerful people use to try to prevent the public from embracing critical inquiry. That was Sarah Kenzior author of the book Hiding in Plain Sight, and co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast. Her forthcoming book, They Knew How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent, will be published in September. For more analysis and commentary on the House January 6th Committee's investigation, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The 303-mile Mountain Valley Frack Gas Pipeline, or MVP, that's being built through the mountains of Virginia and West Virginia, is about 55% complete, but has been stalled for two years, as the company has lost some construction permits and has yet to obtain others to cross water bodies in steep terrain. The gas that could one day flow through the 42-inch pipeline is not for local consumption, but most likely destined for export as liquefied natural gas, or LNG. The Biden administration has pledged to ship LNG to Europe to replace Russian gas that's been sanctioned since Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus participated in the recent Walk for Appalachia's Future, where opponents of the MVP followed the path of the pipeline over 12 days. Along the way, those in the walk 
met with local groups fighting to stop completion of the pipeline. The journey ended with two rallies in Richmond, Virginia's capital, that while not on the pipeline route, is where many important decisions get made about the MVP. One of the rallies focused on the role of Wells Fargo Bank as the biggest financier of the MVP. In the third of a series of reports, Melinda Tuhus recorded one of the rally speakers, Malik Morrison, a young ecologist and a member of Scientist Rebellion, a group that's begun to speak out publicly about climate change. Here he explains how his opposition to the Mountain Valley Pipeline is linked with a broader fight to address the climate crisis. Well, I was engaging in debate with someone for the 20th time over whether planet warming should mean something to them. A stranger asked me what I was born at. And I looked at them perplexed and said, what do you mean? The person looked at me and they said they were born at 316 parts per million. Well, I was born at 368 parts per million. For me, discovering that was the start of my new life. Today, the parts per million of CO2 has reached over 420.6 parts per million. It took 23 years to add 52 parts per million to the atmosphere across the entire globe. This is expected to increase exponentially if we continue down the path of excessive greed and exploiting the planet for profit. For when the last tree has been chopped, last vegetable withered, and the last drop of water tainted, so some people realize what corporations have done to us. I cannot imagine if someone came to my home and said, now Malik, we need to demo your house, your neighbor's house, and that community garden where you get your food from, we need to take it and bring it to the ground for this gigantic 42-inch metal, metal pipe that is going to carry natural gas from the other neighborhood that we destroyed. It's going to be the greatest GDP, the economy is going to boom, the stock market will go up, and you will be so happy. To which I would reply, can I eat a GDP? No. Can I sleep in an economy? No. Well, is the stock market going to protect me from danger? No. Now replace me with all of our most vulnerable species on the planet. Why do we expect them to be happy when all we are doing is taking from them? Major banks such as Citibank, Chase Bank, Wells Fargo, Bank of America have combined invested more than $1 trillion to unsustainable, and outdated, and harmful practices of energy. I truly cannot even comprehend how much a trillion dollars even is. They have chosen to ignore the data presented and commitments made at the Paris Accord. The most profitable corporations to have ever existed have chosen to forego health and well-being of the most vulnerable people in our communities so they can increase a number on a screen. And we find ourselves with more disease than ever despite technological advancements. We find more children in poverty despite open buildings sitting vacant. And we find now more than ever, people are fed up with banks sacrificing us and our lands for profit. I dedicated my education and my life to being the voice for those who cannot speak, but those who cannot lose without having anything. And those who will fight for when they are against the wall because I live for the community and all communities on the planet. And while prophets consume the minds of those who wish to ill upon our mother earth, the only planet that we've got, the rest of us form a bond that cannot be broken. We refuse to be burned by corporate greed, but instead we're going to fizzle the fossil fuel industry with the unyielding power of the beautiful star 94 million miles away. 
or the powerful waves of gravity that gravity makes us, or the swift winds that travel from the ocean to land to help us power our lives. Like, I want to make a difference, and I believe that we can do that together. Everyone together, any way you can. There is no wrong way to protest. I love you all. That was Malik Morrison, an ecologist and member of Scientist Rebellion. Learn more about the group's opposing construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. For months now, the Poor People's Campaign has been organizing for their June 18th rally, called the Mass Poor People's and Low-Wage Workers' Assembly and Moral March on Washington, and to the polls. The action, co-sponsored by a broad coalition of groups, including the AFL-CIO, Move On, Planned Parenthood, the Sunrise Movement, and Black Voters Matter, is committed to launching a moral movement to shift the moral narrative build power, and make real policies to fully address poverty and low wealth from the bottom up. The organizers declare that the gathering in Washington, D.C. will focus public attention in order to address the interlocking injustices of systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, the denial of health care, militarism in the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. Your reporter spoke with the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, with the Reverend Dr. William Barber. She also serves as director of the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice at Union Theological Seminary. Here, Reverend Theo Harris talks about the goals of the June 18th Poor People's March, emphasizing that this is not a one-day protest, but rather the launch of a new social movement. This Saturday, you know, this mass poor people and low-wage workers assembly moral march on Washington and to the polls, you know, aims to be the largest gathering of poor and low-wealth people this country has ever seen. Um, we, have, we have about probably more than, and at this point, 300 different organizational partners. We have, you know, thousands of people coming from states across the country. Right now, actually, people are, are traveling in order to be able to participate, and folks are biking here, walking here, taking caravans here, and then lots of buses, and even flying, to be honest. Our, our movement is, is rooted in love and justice, you know, but this, this gathering, it's, it's not, you know, a celebration. It's not a, you know, kind of get-together. It's, it's a declaration that somebody's been hurting our people. It's gone on for far too long, and we won't be silent anymore. And so we're here not because we actually want to be gathering, but because we have to. I mean, we live in a country that has 140 million people who are poor or one small emergency from absolute economic ruin. It's almost half of the U.S. population. And this was before COVID even hit. Um, and when you, you see how 
poor and low-income people are hurt first and worst by so many of the different problems that we're seeing. When you see that kind of interconnection between gun violence and the climate crisis and, and escalating tension and war, when you see the attacks on, on women and on trans youth and, and workers, it's so clear that this nation needs a, a moral revival of our, our great, greatest moral values and needs to, to put forward an agenda that, that says, you know, it does not have to be this way. Um, and that those that are most impacted by injustice, um, by the injustice of systemic racism and poverty, ecological devastation, the denial of healthcare, militarism, the war economy, and this false moral narrative religious nationalism and white supremacy, this is not as good as it gets. And, and we need to you know, keep on mobilizing and organizing. And so hoping that everybody that is listening in, you know, either is able to kind of make your way down to Pennsylvania Avenue uh, in Washington, D.C. this Saturday. Uh, we also will be live streaming it. But to hear um, the cries and the pain um, and the power coming from poor and low-income people. Thanks, Reverend Theo Harris. Tell our listeners a bit about the goals. Uh, certainly, you set out the agenda here, but at the end of next weekend, what do you want to have accomplished here in next Saturday's action? The purpose of, of something like a moral march on Washington and a, and a powerful assembly of poor and low-wage workers is about pricking the conscience of the nation, making people pay attention. You know, the first 100 minutes, of the program on Saturday, we'll be hearing from those that are most impacted from every state across this country, right? Um, and hear uh, that pain and also see the solutions and power that is coming from, from those that are most impacted by these issues. So when we look today at the kind of, of injustice that is so widespread and, and so deep, we know that we, we can't be silent about these issues anymore, and we have to put in front of the nation um, the voices and the faces of people who were suffering before COVID, but it's only gotten worse as well as, as all the different issues that are, that are impacting people. And so, you know, when you look at history, you see that generationally transformative events like the assembly that that is going to take place in Washington, D.C. on Saturday, you know, play a very important and needed role in making the nation confront actually the kind of issues that are at hand and to, to build the kind of power amongst people to, you know, in the words of someone like Dr. King, make those in power say yes when they may be desirous of saying no. Uh, we've been hearing a lot to, uh, too much no, no to expanding health care, no to raising wages, you know, no to uh, protecting our voting rights and expanding them, you know, no to having public education to the fullest extent possible. And, and so we need to be able to, to declare that it doesn't have to be this way and, and we're going to build up the power to, to enact the kind of change we need to see in the world. That was the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Learn more about the June 18th Poor People's and Low-Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WOOL in Bellows Falls, Vermont, Verdon Square Radio in Summit, New Jersey, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.